This is the Education Gadfly Show. I am dressed as the biker dude from the village people. And Russ, what are you dressed as today? Uh, Russ. <laughs> what does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at edexcellence.net. And now, please join me in welcoming our special guest for this week, Russ Whitehurst. Russ, welcome to the show. Thank you. Do I have to talk like that, like a radio host, or <laughs> yes. can I just use my normal voice? <laughs> well, you got to, you, I don't know, you got to show some enthusiasm. Okay. So that's important. Come that, on. That was Mike's normal that, voice. That is my normal voice. And I'm wearing my normal outfit today. You are uh, It is Halloween, and I am dressed as the biker dude from the Village People. And Russ, what are you dressed as today? Uh, Russ. <laughs> <laughs> Good. That's excellent. Well, Russ uh, is the senior fellow in the Center on Children and Families in the Economic Studies Program. At Brookings, he's probably best known as being the founding director of the Institute for Education Sciences, which has been a huge success. And I have to say, Russ, the fact that every week Amber here does a research minute on some study, and more often than not, though, they're very good, rigorous studies asking important questions. And I don't think that would have been the case 20 years ago before IES. That certainly was not the case. 20 years ago, because I was trying to sell the the legislature on the need for this stuff and had tried to find good examples and there weren't any. Yeah. So thank you for that. Also joining us, our co-host, David Griffith. Hey, Mike. All right. David dressed as the blue wave. Yeah, I am. I uh, thought thought of going as Megyn Kelly's uh, career, but apparently that's no longer a thing. So (laughs) nicely said. Yeah, Yeah, I don't know. You're going to jinx it. You're going to jinx it though for next week. I don't know. Watch out. (laughs) Watch out. I, I remember, you know, uh, two years ago, I went as Hillary Clinton's emails, which seemed very funny at the time. Although a lot of people in my neighborhood didn't think it was so funny, they, uh, even back then. That's almost so, hard to believe. It's almost, it seemed safe because if she was going to win. She was going to win. It seemed safe. All right. Well, we're not here to talk about Halloween or politics. We're here to talk about education reform. Let's do our ed reform update. So, Russ, you have been uh, you've been playing a very difficult role as a gadfly in the world of early childhood. This is a world that you've studied for years, uh, and most people want to say that pre-K, high-quality pre-K, it's going to be the answer to so many of our problems, and you have been the skunk at that party. Uh, tell us why you are more skeptical than most about the, uh, the potential power of pre-K. Because the research uh, actually stinks, and uh, I'm very sensitive to the odor of, uh, <laughs> of, 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 of research. And so it's much weaker than people think. I mean, I spent uh, the first 30 years of my life believing that intervention in early childhood was where the action was going to be, and it could produce permanent changes in life trajectories, and we just had to get it right. And I keep running into anomalies to that point of view that have uh, caused me to just raise questions. I think we need better evidence before we make the kind of investments and the strong faith-based state that are uh, are driving policy in this area. Yeah. All right. Well, so so say a little bit more. I mean, we've got, of course, people are familiar with the studies of those uh, incredibly impactful programs, the Ypsilanti's and the Chicago Parent Child. And so people have pointed to those. But even more recently, there's been some larger scale programs, and some of them have evaluations that at least the advocates say show a lot of progress and, and promise. What What's wrong with that take? Well, I don't know those studies. <laughs> um, um, so there are a variety of studies that show, I think, uh, without controversy. I mean, I don't object to the findings at all that if you teach kids things in a pre-K year, yeah. that they would not be exposed to where they not in the pre-K setting. Mm-hmm. They can learn those things. Yep. And so you want a child to know the letters of the alphabet when the child mm-hmm. is four, you can teach a child mm-hmm. those things. And okay. a child not taught those things won't know them. 
Yeah. Uh, so there are a lar- large number of studies now that show big gains during the pre-K year compared to uh, a group of kids who've not yet started pre-K. Uh, the problem is the assumption is that those early uh, effects are going to result in long-term changes in school performance, uh, mm. better careers, happy lives, and mm. all the rest. Right. And that's where the evidence is simply not there. We have uh, uh, a number of studies, some of them recent, starting with the uh, National Head Start Impact Study that show no follow-up effects in elementary school. On academics? On um, anything. On anything? Is that right? E- so, even some of the non-cognitive stuff? On a, including social-emotional okay. skills. In fact, where you get evidence there, it tends to be negative uh, because going to any school setting gives you the opportunity to learn to do bad stuff that you mm-hmm. wouldn't learn if you were not uh, if you were not there so we have the national head start impact study uh, big effects during the head start year no effects as the kids transitioned into uh, into elementary school we have the recent uh, Tennessee Voluntary uh, Pre-K Program Mm -hmm. Evaluation, the big program in Tennessee, providing Mm -hmm. uh, free pre-K, state pre-K through the public schools for uh, children from low-income families. Big effects during the pre-K year. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not only no positive effects as the children transitioned into uh, elementary school, but negative effects. So the kids who uh, were randomized into the pre-K experience have uh, less favorable outcomes yeah, and kids, uh, kids not. So what 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 would a James Heckman say about all of this? I mean, there are people out there who are respected scientists who still say, no, 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 this is where this is where the action still is, Russ. I mean, what what does Heckman argue about these studies? That that the research I just cited is bad research, or it's been analyzed uh, poorly. Okay. Whereas the study of uh, sixty two kids from forty five years ago in Ypsilanti, Michigan, yeah. with errors in random assignment and uh, long term effects largely attributed to the difference in the murder rates between the two mm-hmm. two groups is to be preferred. Uh, so uh, I don't see that being the yeah. case. So then what, what should we do for kids growing up in poverty in those early years? Say nothing? We just, you know, they, or is, are there some interventions there that make more sense or better investments than, than these large-scale pre-K programs? Well, the most obvious thing that poor parents don't have, mm-hmm. that affluent parents do have, is money. Yep. And one form of intervention that seems to make a real difference is improving the economic circumstances of Mm -hmm. poor families. Mm -hmm. That can be done, of course, by a better economy and available jobs and raising the minimum wage and also can be uh, obtained through transfer transfer programs. So evidence on the earned income tax credit Mm -hmm. uh, shows that it can have substantial effect, uh, not only in families, but, uh, but kids. So I would start with uh, with trying to improve the circumstances of the families that raise these children, mm-hmm. rather than thinking that I'm going to fix the kids when they're four years old and yeah. they will be able to be resistant to all of the problems they would otherwise have succumbed to. Yeah, no, I mean that makes sense to me. I mean, I'm curious, David, your take on this. I mean, because it, it does when you also combine this with the fact that we know even with this incredibly hot economy, there's still a lot of people on the sidelines uh, of of the workforce that there are in, in most of these communities there are adults around they might be grandparents or others or you know who are around who could be caring for the kids uh or you could take that earned income tax credit money and if you didn't have that you could purchase child care arrangements with it uh so the custodial piece of this you know could be we we could figure that piece out right and the question is is having them in a pre-k setting that much better 
than having them with a loved one at home or or some other situation. I mean, is it, wh- wh- where are we getting this wrong? David? <laughs> uh, I mean, at the risk of of, of sounding like um, someone who wears a blue wave costume, <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I, I do think many people would say it's both and. Um, and uh, I don't know. I, I, I'm in partial agreement. I, I mean, I go back and forth when I read the research because it really, it really depends on how um, you know stringent you want to be uh, in terms of of which studies you believe. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess uh, I, I don't know. It, it, to me, there's something a little bit. I, I'm all for rigorous designs, and I tend to agree that a dose of realism is needed here. Um, I, I still think there's something a little odd, at least for me, about um, I guess blaming pre-K when the the results fade out, right? I mean, if we were, if, if, if we had an excellent elementary school mm-hmm. and then the kids went to middle school and, you know, the, the gains faded out, mm-hmm. we wouldn't blame the elementary school, right? We would, presumably, we would blame the middle school where, right. where the kids are attending. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, that isn't necessarily an argument for jumping into the pool and, and giving every kid pre-K, but I do think, you know, I think there's a valid yeah. counter-argument here, which yeah. is that, you know, maybe if the kids are coming into to kindergarten and first grade, you know, ahead, and that's fading out. We ought to do something about right. kindergarten and first no, grade. That's interesting. That, that maybe most of our high poverty elementary schools are terrible, and that's the problem. Or, or, I mean, or, is that is that compelling? Well, to but you? You, you, the, the the premise of the standard model of early education, as articulated by the economist James Heckman and others, is a cumulative model. Yeah. yeah. Where the acquisitions early on are more mm-hmm. important, mm-hmm. and a skill begets skill, mm-hmm. and so what you should see in that model is that children who are better off at the end of the mm-hmm. pre-K year should benefit more from school than other kids. E- even and if that school is mediocre. That's right. Right, right, right. So that that's fair. And you but, don't find that. So, <laughs> so it's okay. a great theory. No, no, it just and that, doesn't and comport. Fair. And I suspect a lot of people just feel, it just feels unfair that, you know, rich kids get to go to pre-K uh, and poor kids don't. And that that feels unfair. It just like if we had rich kids got to go to fourth grade and poor kids didn't, it would feel unfair. Right? Well, but, yeah. And I mean, maybe another way of putting the point or, or another sort of um, cheeky way of arguing back is to say, well, okay, you know, why not get rid of kindergarten then, right? I mean, at what point, right. you know, I mean, what 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 is our standard for when kids should should go to school, right? right. What are we basing right. that decision on? Right. Well, the best evidence is that kindergarten has very little impact as well. Okay. <laughs> right. well, no, well, there we go. Right. I assume that's true, right? So, let me make it clear <laughs> yeah. that I'm not arguing against uh, uh, children being in organized yeah. settings when yeah. they're young kids. Yeah. I'm simply saying that to think this is a transformative experience yeah. Yeah. that's yeah. going to undo the vicissitudes of life and yeah. produce uh, strong outcomes. As uh, Arne Duncan said, high quality preschool is a sure path to the middle class. Ooh, right. That's Simply does not <laughs> fit yeah. the yeah. existing mm-hmm. data. Yes. And That's if right. we believe that, we right. take off of the whiteboard other possibilities for improving lives yeah. and reforming yeah. education yeah. that are simply shuttled aside mm-hmm. with the uh, uh, over overblown enthusiasm for pre-K as an intervention. Yeah, no, that's fair. And, and the EAITC is huge. And, and so is improving elementary schools. I mean, we've finally got attention again on early reading, thanks to a great documentary uh, that uh, that we talked about here on, on this show recently. Uh, that that here we are 20 years after the national reading panel and it appears that many elementary schools high poverty elementary schools are still not teaching uh scientifically based reading instruction and that sort of thing which by the way is not particularly expensive uh could make a big difference uh and maybe if if we get some of our pre-k friends focused on things like that boring sure cheap 
We know, for example, that uh, that no excuses uh, charter schools mm-hmm. have large impacts on academic achievement. Yep. Understanding that most of these schools do not have a pre-K component, and right. when they do have a pre-K component, it doesn't seem to be contributing to their to yeah. their success. So we should be focusing on things that we know. Yeah. That work, uh, you know, intensive tutoring for ninth mm-hmm. graders is a very powerful uh, intervention. All of these things are shunted aside yeah. under the belief system mm-hmm. that the brain uh, develops in its, in its final form by mm-hmm. age four, and we got to get in there early and affect those neurons, right. or we're not going to have a chance. And yep. again, I think that's a serious mistake. All right. Russ Whitehurst, thanks again. Uh, Russ at Brookings, formerly uh, the founding director. Is that fair? Is that a good way to say it? The, I think the that's first fair and accurate, too. Institute for Educational Sciences. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Pleased to be here. Thank you. All right. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. you, You are calling in from Richmond from your home office, and I'm wondering, are you wearing a Halloween costume? That's fair. Hey, you know, so I try I raised the stakes this year because I feel like participation in the Fordham annual costume contest has been waning. And so I laid it down. I said, whoever wins the contest this year gets a free vacation day between now and the end of the year. Yep. The- yeah. Yeah. David actually dressed up this year. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, yeah. I spent a good five minutes on yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> that's fine. And and Andrew always with very impressive hand uh, homemade costumes this year as as a mosquito or maybe a spooky gadfly. Huh? Awesome. Right. Okay. And and uh, disappointingly enough, Russ Whitehurst did not wear a costume. Oh, man, you got a great idea for him too. You know, uh, a randomized control trial. I'm not quite sure. How yeah, that, that would have been amazing. All right. Well, what do you have for us this week? Uh, we got a new report by Tom Kane and uh, and colleagues that examines the impact of a statewide college remediation policy in Tennessee. Hmm. Uh, I hadn't heard too much about this one, but it's looking at students' ability to take and pass college-level math and accumulate college-level credits. Uh, they call the program SAILS. I won't get into the acronym, but it's called SAILS. And the main goal of it was to shift the locus of math remediation from college back to high school. Okay. Uh, rolled out to a majority of Tennessee high schools over the last several years, kind of started small and just kind of branched out to, um, to all the high schools in the state. Uh, it basically works like this. Students in the sale participating schools who score below the remediation threshold, and in that case, it's, it's less than a 19 on the ACT math test, mm-hmm. um, and that's about roughly half of the seniors in those schools um, scored at that level. And they can fulfill their math remediation by completing an online math course their senior year. Mm-hmm. If they complete all five modules, they're exempted from the math remediation requirement when they enroll in a Tennessee community college. Okay. okay? And they examine the impact of sale under two different uh, approaches. One, when students are required to complete remediation before college. So, again, that's the prerequisite yep. for remediation. And after students were allowed to enroll in remediation concurrently with their college level classes. Mm-hmm. It's even more complicated. I'm not going to get too much in the weeds, but they also use two different research designs. 
They use a difference in difference where they compare the change in the outcome in schools in the year they began implementing sales against the change for those that had not yet implemented sales. Mm-hmm. And they also do a regression discontinuity design that identifies the impact of being assigned to remediation of any kind. So that's that could be the sales, it could be the prerequisite, the co-requisite, and all those different versions versus no remediation is your control group. Mm-hmm. So here we're looking at the outcomes of all those kids who scored right above or below the ACT score cutoff. So they do these two pretty rigorous designs to sort of get at this question of what's the impact of the sales college remediation policy in Tennessee. Okay? Yep. Um, three key findings. I'm going to kind of talk about the, the designs together. Uh, the first one, which is under the prerequisite remediate before college policy, um, students with ACT scores below that 19 enrolled in college-level math at higher rates after their schools implemented the sales mm-hmm. program. That's not too surprising. Specifically, they were 29 percentage points more likely to enroll in college math and roughly half passed the course. Mm-hmm. Uh, a 13 percentage point increase in the percentage passing college math by the end of their first college year. Mm-hmm. That's good news. Well, is it? But, but hold on, Amber. That, that is a lot of kids failing a math class at college. I mean... All right. That that's a that's a punch in the gut. All right. All right. Uh, sales did not improve students' math achievement or boost their likelihood of passing college math once they took the course. Mm-hmm. So, um, students are just a, another part of the design. Students have scored above and below that cutoff. They actually administered a post test to those kids, mm-hmm. so they were able to see. Um, so, I, like I just said, about half of them passed, but the passing rates weren't higher than for the students with similar ACT scores. Right. Just above and below that remediation threshold. Mm-hmm. And then number three, this is the last key finding, um, after the co-requisite policy, so in other words, now you can take a concurrent, you know, while you're taking your college courses, uh, that sales program no longer had any impact on the percentage of students taking or passing college math mm-hmm. uh, during that first year, uh, nor did it have an impact on the total number of credits completed at the end of your second year. And basically what they said is by lifting that that barrier to taking that, those college-level courses and having kids take them in high school, um, the new sort of, you know, co-requisite policy sort of made that mute, you know, to sort of bypass the sales program by allowing students to do their remediation at the same time they were taking college-level courses. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, they're kind of, kind of shooting themselves in the foot, I guess. But it provided them, you know, a pretty cool research design to be able to study these things. So then there's this big discussion of, you know, what do we do about college remediation? I mean, we are, you know, this is a big problem across the country. Yep. Obviously, Tennessee was trying to kind of tackle this thing with a statewide policy. There's only, I think there are eight or nine other states that are trying something like this. Um, and so the discussion was, you know, what what can it be? And um, I mean, I thought it was a pretty good discussion. I think one of the things that resonated for me was talking again about these self-paced online courses. And lo and behold, they may not be the best option for low-achieving students. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and may, or maybe the program just wasn't that great. It wasn't teaching kids math, so it could have been the, the substance of the sales program. Uh, it could be that you know when you when you wait till your senior year to try to get remediated, that's probably a little too late. Mm-hmm. Um, or it could just be you know we can't one single policy is not going to you know solve this problem, right? That you probably need, or my wording, you need a more soup to nuts approach. You know, mm-hmm. when you're dealing with kids who are um, so far behind in, in mathematics. 
And what about the idea that maybe kids who are so far behind in mathematics by the time they're 18 should not be encouraged to go to college and spend a lot of money that they don't have uh, to have an outcome that is likely not to be positive? That is also a... <sighs> yeah. It was not discussed in the Tom Gaines study, but... Uh... You know, or, or to figure out uh, a post-secondary pathway that perhaps doesn't require very high levels of math, which I understand there's not a lot of those great pathways out there, but you could still uh, find some of them. I mean, you know, this is where we just, uh, this forever, we have to balance this idea. We do all want to give up on kids, but we also don't want to be Pollyannish. And at the end of the day, are we helping kids by saying, go to college, go take that college level course. I mean, half of kids failing a freshman year math class, that cannot be an enjoyable way to start college. Yeah. I I mean, I guess the question is, what, what is college for? Which is, I mean, you're posing that question yeah. implicitly, right? And I mean, there's there's something, the way we're doing it is crazy, right? We're essentially saying you you have to, college, whatever college is for, it includes algebra two, mm-hmm. right? And hey, kids who uh, can't do algebra two, you should go to college. Right. Right. That the, that combination of messages is insane. Yeah. Right. So uh, either we have to tell those kids not to go to college, right? Right. If they can't do algebra two and aren't going to be able to do it, or we need to come up with some definition of college yeah. for kids that can't do Algebra 2 that makes sense and 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 have some sort of goals, yeah. and we should stop requiring it. I mean, if, yeah. if they're not no, going to be able right. to do it, we that's should right. stop requiring it. I and, mean, I think and, there's a case to be made on the And there is. There are, there's a movement to say that maybe all of, you know, some parts of Algebra 2 really are necessary and some are not. And so let's be clear. I still about don't that. know what E is, right? Like E, E to the whatever natural log. Like I'm just a poor researcher here, right? Like there are things that I forget. I do not remember from algebra two. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. I don't know, but 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 I think that's still. I mean, I, I still think that leaves the question. Then what is algebra? You know, what is yeah. college for? That's right. That's right. right. But uh, I mean, what you guys are saying is, I mean, this is a discussion we were having when we were talking about Common Core high school math. There's a push in some states to actually align what you need to know in high school math with careers. Um, so, you know, if you're a STEM career, we've said along in, maybe you need, you know, different requirements than a non-STEM major. Yeah. Um, and so I think this is following along with, with what you guys are saying. You know, let's just better, let's better figure out the types of math you do and do not need for particular uh, professions. And, and guess what? If that ACT cut score is a pretty good measure of readiness, then why didn't they say, okay, at the end of the sales program, the end of senior year, we're going to have the kids retake ACT and, you know, see if they're remediation free. You know, I mean, it's, it's just, we keep playing these games because we don't want to face the facts, people. We can't handle the truth. One of your favorite lines, Amber. All right. <laughs> all right. Well, that is all the time we've got, especially since we, we got to go do some trick-or-treating. Uh, so. I pity the kid. <laughs> <laughs> until next week. I'm David Griffin. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gadfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at edexcellence.net.